0: Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and you're listening to Words on Film on WBCALP Boston. I will be reviewing some of the newest movies out right now. This week I have had a very busy week, not because there are so many movies to see in so little time, not just because of that, but also because this week... I turned 40, so fortunately, my parents were able to come into town, and we had a great uh, birthday celebration, my parents and my girlfriend, but the downside of that is I didn't get to see as many movies as I would have liked, You know, just being around my parents, going out, showing them the greater Nashville area as I do. That was a lot of fun, of course, but of course, come Friday or Saturday, I didn't get to see as many movies as I wanted to, but I did get to see some films, two of them, which are actually brand new from this week, and one that came out a month ago for which I'm playing catch up right now. So I'm going to start with the movie that is probably the newest and most auspicious of the films that have come out in theaters this week. So the first movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Armageddon Time. This is a film that is a deeply personal coming-of-age story about the strength of family and the generational pursuit of the American dream. It is directed by, written by, and produced by James Gray. And the movie has not exactly been confirmed to be completely autobiographical, but chances are that James Gray made this at least semi-autobiographical because it takes place in 1980, and it is about a 6th grader, and considering that James Gray was born in 1969 in New York City, this movie was probably based on his life and his own experiences. If you don't know who James Gray is, he has been directing for quite some time. He made his debut as a feature film director in 1994, with the film Little Odessa, but you might know him best from having directed films recently, like Ad Astra, which starred Brad Pitt, which is probably his biggest movie to date, The Lost City of Z, and The Immigrant, amongst others. But the movie uh, Armageddon Time is actually not about an asteroid that's hurtling towards Earth, as I probably implied from it being a deeply personal coming-of-age story. But then again, Ad Astra was a uh, semi-realistic science fiction film, which details, maybe unlike Back to the Future Part Two, how the future could be on Earth and how going from planet to planet could be just as routine as flying to Minneapolis, for example, but Ad Astra was a fascinating movie that I did see when it came out, but the show was on hiatus as as I was trying to find a recording studio to create this podcast. But James Gray certainly has a talent for, uh, directing and storytelling and Armageddon time is, is undoubtedly his most personal movie to date. So this follows the trials and tribulations of an 11 year old sixth grader by the name of Paul Graff, who as I said previously, is probably based directly on James Gray. And in this film he's played by a young actor by the name of Banks Repetta. And when we first meet Paul, he is in PS 132, which for those of you who are not familiar with New York City or its public school systems, that is one of several public schools. And he's not exactly a troublemaker, but he is a bit of a mischievous kid, and he certainly has a very overactive imagination, which made me like him almost instantly. And he begins to befriend another classmate who is a black student who's been held back at least once. His name is Johnny Davis, and he's played by Jalen Webb. And Johnny Davis is one of those students who probably is not getting the help that he needs. And it's obvious that he's being written off by his public school system, especially his strict teacher, Mr. Turkle who's played by Andrew Polk. And Johnny Davis is, you could probably extrapolate from this film, a good kid who is misunderstood and very much like the character of Paul Graff. He's also known for getting into mischief. Johnny and Paul find themselves befriending one another when they both get into trouble with Mr. Turkle for very tame reasons, but for public school in the sixth grade, it, it feels kind of like they're serving time as opposed to just paying a parking ticket. But as the movie progresses, you learn more about Paul Graf's home life, particularly his close-knit Jewish family, which consists of his mother, Esther Graff, who is the president of the PTA, who's played by Anne Hathaway, his semi-strict plumber father, Irving Graff, who's played by Jeremy Strong, and while there are other members of his family, the primary members whom you get to know the most include his parents, who I just mentioned, and also his grandpa, whose name is Aaron Rabinowitz, who's played by Anthony Hopkins. And when Anthony Hopkins first came into this movie and started speaking, I wasn't quite sure if Anthony Hopkins was trying to do an American accent and just gave up part of the way, but when Aaron Rabinowitz begins to reveal his background and how his parents escaped um, the Nazis uh, right before World War II and went from Ukraine to England where he was partially raised and then from England to the United States... It makes sense how Anthony Hopkins' accent is the way it is here. But even though we we're in a movie-going time where, or rather, this has been sort of the year of great actors trying really bad accents, and some of the primary examples of this include Tom Hanks trying and failing to do a Danish accent... In Elvis, and also an Italian accent in the live action remake of Pinocchio, and also Kevin Klein doing a really, really bad Massachusetts accent in the most recent film he did with Sigourney Weaver. Um, I I was probably putting Anthony Hopkins in that category, but I'm not going to do that now because his accent actually makes sense in the grand scheme of this movie. But even, you know, ambiguous accent aside, The scenes with Anthony Hopkins and Banks Rapata are probably the best scenes in this film, and it's obvious that the two of them have a special bond. And even though I didn't grow up in New York City, I did grow up in a close-knit family where I did have other members of my family who were not my immediate nuclear family living with us, and I I also didn't grow up Jewish, but there were there are certain aspects of this film to which I could relate, certainly being 11 years old, misunderstood, and also apt to get into some mischief as well. So that's why I identified a lot with Banks Rapata's performance. And of course, the scenes he did with Anthony Hopkins were gold. And even though Anne Hathaway being the bigger star here gets the top billing here. I also was very impressed not only with Anthony Hopkins's performance, but also with Jeremy Strong's performance. And it's obvious as the movie progresses and Paul, Paul Graff, the character gets into more trouble at school, what the relationship is between his mother as in addition to his father. And it's a different kind of relationship. It's sort of the being 1980. It's the waning, years of the wait till your father gets home. And you'll see what I mean when this movie progresses. In fact, there's one scene that takes place in a bathroom. That's probably the end of that era. And I'm not going to tell you what that scene is, but it is a very dramatic scene, not to mention a very relatable scene for somebody who has grown up in a kind of household. Like that, albeit I was born a couple of years later, but there are some certain poignant scenes to which I can certainly relate. And it being the time that it is, which is late 1980, it also tells you a lot without really resorting to nostalgia about the mentality that kids and adults had at the time about uh, race in America. There are certain things that were acceptable for people to say in 1980 that are not acceptable now. Some for good reason, some might be taking it a little too far, but that's, of course, a bit of another story to compare this era to the era in which we live now. That would go on for quite some time if I were to elaborate further. But also, prevalent views on marijuana are are displayed here, especially when Paul and Johnny are caught smoking cannabis in the bathroom, which is probably still against the rules today, but it was a much bigger deal. The prevalent views of marijuana were not as accurate as they are today. And I could go on, but there are also some other surprising performances here that make this movie seem a bit more autobiographical than you might expect, including an appearance by Fred Trump. And I'm not talking about the real Fred Trump because Fred Trump Sr. died in 1999, but he's played almost eerily accurately here by the actor John Dale. And it is, it's incredible um, how well he channels Fred Trump, especially when you see uh, footage of Fred Trump perhaps on YouTube. There's also a brief appearance here by Jessica Chastain playing Marianne Trump, who is the eldest of the Trump children. And the speech that Jessica Chastain makes here um, as Marianne Trump, and she's only in this movie for about two or three minutes. And in this speech, she's speaking to school children about the efforts of working your way, uh, working very hard in school to get into a good college and a good graduate school so you can play with the big boys. Now, unlike another certain Trump sibling, Marianne Trump actually did work her way up honestly and with a lot of integrity. She certainly had a lot of help being born in the family into which she was born, but her work ethic is admirable and and the the two uh trump family members here don't play a significant role in or at least not in terms of main characters in this movie but it's it's probably one of those things that including them in this film shows that the trump family was not as nationally or internationally recognized as they are with as much notoriety as they are today but Just about everyone in New York City knew who they were. And I think this movie brilliantly shows the influence that they had just in (laughs) that lake region. And of course, by lake region, I am speaking very facetiously. But there's a lot to love about Armageddon Time. It definitely is a coming-of-age movie and certainly one of those slice-of-life films. And there was a lot to which I could relate being... a a Reagan baby like I am (laughs) and I'm 40 and I'm probably one of the older Reagan babies and either the younger of the generation X or the oldest of the millennials. I don't exactly know, but there's certainly a lot that I recognized from Armageddon Time from when I grew up that certainly maybe even universal for people who are older than me and maybe even some who are slightly younger than me. But Armageddon Time is an excellently written film. It is superbly acted by just about everyone involved, but most especially Jeremy Strong, Banks Peta, Jalen Webb, and Anthony Hopkins. And Anthony Hopkins will probably be nominated for an Oscar for this film. I would like to see Jeremy Strong also get some supporting actor recognition. But, as you might imagine, Armageddon Time is a deeply personal and poignant film to which I give my rating of a knockout. Just about everything in this film works, even though it doesn't really tell the traditional story. As I said, it's more of a slice-of-life film, and it doesn't really end on a very definitive note in terms of its storytelling, but there is a lot to love about the film, particularly the acting, the set design, the lack of genuine nostalgia. And I overall loved Armageddon time. And it's a film that I would probably see again, particularly with people who haven't seen the movie. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Enola Holmes 2, which premiered on Netflix on November 4th, 2022. And it is, of course, the sequel to Enola Holmes, which came out on September 23rd, 2020, on Netflix, to which it can be seen on Netflix to this very day, and it is unlikely that that film and Enola Holmes 2 will be released on, or will rather be removed on Netflix anytime soon. I think that Netflix keeps all its original movies on the streaming platform, but other films, you know, come and go, but the Netflix originals, I believe, stay. Uh, The... Extenuating circumstances are if if maybe the film is controversial or somebody gets canceled. But well, my point is that Enola Holmes can be easily viewed as well as a sequel anytime on Netflix indefinitely. But what was not made apparent to me when I reviewed Enola Holmes uh, two years ago was that I knew Enola Holmes, who is the younger sister of Sherlock Holmes, was not a creation of the creator of Sherlock Holmes, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. What I did not realize was that in the Enola Holmes mystery is a young adult fiction series of detective novels by not only Nancy Springer, who is, as, as far as I know, no relation to Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. She's also American. But in the Enola Holmes mysteries, Enola Holmes is the 14-year-old sister of an already famous and auspicious Sherlock Holmes, 20 years her senior. That part of the story of Enola Holmes really hasn't changed, although Millie Bobby Brown, who plays Enola Holmes in both films, is certainly not 14, and you could tell that just by looking at her. But... In this movie, Enola Holmes is now a detective for hire, separate of her older brother, and she takes on her first official case to find a missing girl as the sparks of a dangerous conspiracy ignite a mystery that requires the help of friends and Sherlock himself to unravel. Now, for those of you who have not seen the original Enola Holmes, that was when... Sherlock Holmes's teen sister discovers her mother is missing and sets off to find her. And when she succeeds at that, and that's a little bit of a spoiler, I'm sorry to say, and I try to avoid spoilers on words on film, but I can't really explain that without spoiling. But in any event, Enola Holmes finds that she has a talent for solving mysteries, especially for finding missing persons almost the same way that Sherlock Holmes does himself. But because Sherlock Holmes is 20 years older and has had more real-world experience, he's obviously better at doing it than Enola Holmes is. But Enola Holmes certainly has a knack for solving mysteries that's similar to Sherlock Holmes. She just doesn't have the experience or the street credibility. But this movie emphasizes that she is certainly honing that well-polished craft of solving mysteries. And this delves into a very interesting and intriguing conspiracy that unravels as Enola Holmes is solving the case of this missing girl. And she is ultimately... a suspect in a murder, and she's pursued by a London police chief by the name of Grail, who's played by David Thewlis. And I didn't mention this previously, but Sherlock Holmes in this film, just as in the original 2020 in Ola Holmes, is played by Henry Cavill. And Henry Cavill, and it might be because he's British, does a much, much better job portraying Sherlock Holmes than he does portraying Superman. In fact, he made a cameo as Superman in the recent DCEU movie Black Adam, and I could hear members of the audience with whom I was seeing this film uh groan when Henry Cavill came on as Superman. And that definitely says a lot about Henry Cavill's uh perceived reputation playing the character, but I still think he is a good actor, and when you get him into the right role, which may or may not be his role of Superman, and it's not, to his credit, entirely his fault that he's not so great at playing Superman, it might have been some of the directors who have been directing him playing that role. But here, in these Enola Holmes films, both of which are directed by Harry Bradbeer, I guess the director is bringing some good out of him. Not to mention that... In addition to this film being a really good mystery that unravels with so many plot twists and so many layers to which I won't give away, because there is actually one very surprising twist at the end involving Sherlock Holmes' arch nemesis, Moriarty, and who Moriarty is. And I'm not going to give that away except just to say that. I was really impressed by the mystery in Enola Holmes 2. It was a very smart and very well-woven mystery. Plus, for the people with the shorter attention spans, there's also some very good fight choreography. The fight choreography here is very violent, which is probably why Enola Holmes and Enola Holmes 2 earned their PG-13 rating. But I do think that older children, maybe eight years and older, would see this film. I think that maybe the PG 13 film is uh, the PG 13 rating is a bit of a stretch because there is a lot of violence in this film, but there's very little sexual content and almost no swearing, particularly by the main actors. In fact, I can't even remember a single swear word that's said in this film at all. But I do think that older children would like and appreciate this film as well, especially girls. And I was equally as impressed with Enola Holmes 2 as much as I was with Enola Holmes. Maybe there was a little bit more emphasis on Sherlock Holmes in this film than there was in the earlier film, but I still think that Millie Bobby Brown as Sherlock Holmes' younger sister certainly stood her own. And you could definitely tell what her motivations are as she's trying to solve this case without the help of her family. And... She does get help from her family, but A, she's not given a hand to hold, and B, it's when she really, really needs help that not only her older brother, but also her mother and a family acquaintance comes through for her. And I think that's uh, some very important lessons to extract from this film without being beaten over the head with the subject of uh, the hero of the story can do things on her own, but she or he or she also needs help. So I was impressed by Enola Holmes too. It got my, it gained my attention. I certainly appreciated the performances by almost everyone involved, as well as the really intricate and well-woven mystery that was the story, which is why I give Inola Holmes to my rating of a knockout. I think that Millie Bobby Brown, just like she did in the original film, has more to her acting palette and a lot more to her range as an actress than her role in Stranger Things, which could have been the acting equivalent of a one-hit wonder. But Millie Bobby Brown definitely has an enigmatic and certainly charismatic presence to her, playing other roles besides that very famous role of Eleven that she does in Stranger Things. She does very well in that role, but Enola Holmes, the movies, shows that she has more range, and hopefully she gets more range, or rather, roles with more range in the movies and TV shows that are to come. I certainly look forward to seeing it. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Mr. Harrigan's Phone. This is a film that premiered on Netflix on October 5th, 2022, and I'm a little bit late to the party in terms of reviewing this film, but it's one that I've been dying to see from beginning to end for a while, and I didn't get the chance to see it from beginning to end until very recently. And Mr. Harrigan's Phone is based on a short story, actually a novella, that was compiled into a short story collection by Stephen King on his book, If It Bleeds, which is a collection of four previously unpublished novellas, which also includes The Life of Chuck, If It Bleeds, and Rat. And Mr. Harrigan's Phone, I believe, is the first film of that book series, or rather the first story of that book series that has been adapted into a film. And the movie centers on a young man by the name of Craig, who lives in a small town called Hol- um, Holden, Maine, which I don't know is ac- whether or not it's actually a real Maine town. And the, the movie actually was not filmed in Maine, it was filmed in Connecticut, but... My God, either uh, rural Connecticut is almost exactly the same as Maine, or uh, it's just the set design or maybe some of the cinematography that makes this look like a small town in Maine. But having grown up in a small town in Maine myself, it is amazing how accurate this movie gets small town Maine, despite not actually having been filmed there and not having many actors there who are in the movie who are from Maine either. The film stars Jaden Martell as the young man, Craig, who is a freshman in high school when we are, well, actually he's a grade schooler when we're first introduced to him. When we're introduced to him in his freshman in high school form, he's played by Jaden Martell, who actually had a significant role in the It films that were, of course, based on the epic novel It that was written by Stephen King and was released in theaters to critical acclaim. I didn't actually think the first uh, It film was as scary as the miniseries, but I did think It Chapter 2 was... An improvement in terms of the scares. I might be alone in that regard, but it's my opinion and I'm sticking to it. Mr. Harrigan's Phone is not so much a horror film as much as it is sort of a mystery suspense in addition to being a teen coming-of-age drama, but it does have elements of horror as you might expect from Stephen King, although Stephen King does not necessarily write horror stories. It's just that horror is his bread and butter. It's how he became the richest man who lives in Maine right now. And in this film, young Craig, who is a native of the small town of Holden, Maine, becomes acquainted with retired businessman John Harrigan, who is played by Donald Sutherland. And he is hired initially to read books to John Harrigan, and the instructions are to just read to him three times a week. Five years later, a teenage Craig and elderly Harrigan have become somewhat friends. And he has started high school, and he's dealing with some bullies, including one uh, particularly intimidating bully by the name of Kenny Yankovich, who's played by Cyrus Arnold. Not only is Kenny Yankovic big and imposing, but he's also a junkie as well. But eventually, Mr. Harrigan dies. But before he dies, young Craig introduces him to the iPhone and they sort of become even closer friends because of their introduction to the iPhone. And this movie, by the way, takes place in 2007 when the iPhone is brand new, whereas now it's a part of our daily lives. Uh, of course, I don't have an iPhone, but I do have a smartphone, and I'm not looking to get rid of it anytime soon. But young Jaden, excuse me, young Craig, who's played by Jaden Martell, begins to receive mysterious calls and texts from Mister Harrigan's phone, even though Mister Harrigan is dead and buried. And there's an interesting uh, twist as to how. Mr. Harrigan is able to obtain his phone, which I won't give away here. And eventually, um, as a way of grieving Mr. Harrigan's death, Craig begins to sort of wish in vain, or so he thinks, about the fates of certain people with whom he is acquainted, including this particular bully. And this bully is painted in very broad strokes, as it tends to be in Stephen King books. Obviously, Stephen King has had some experience being bullied. Otherwise, he wouldn't have put some of these uh, kinds of characters in his novels. And he also has a reputation for putting people who have done him wrong, their names, in the, his books, in his stories, as antagonists. And did he have a, a previous beef with somebody named Kenny Yankovich? Maybe, but I can't exactly confirm f- for sure. Somebody who's more familiar with Stephen King's books would or stories would probably be able to tell you that more than I would. But Mr. Harrigan's phone, the movie, is a bit uneven in its tone as well as its storytelling. and it, And the ending, I thought, was... Kind of flat. I won't exactly give away what that ending is, but particularly when dealing with a a masterful storyteller as Stephen King, I expected that the ending would be a bit more climactic, but instead it was somewhat anticlimactic and also had sort of some commentary about the prevalence of smartphones in our society and how it's changed us, which I think is sometimes very valid commentary, but in this movie it felt a little bit off. But the scenes that had Donald Sutherland in them, and particularly where he was interacting with the character of Craig, whether he was played by Jaden Martell or in his younger self played by a young actor by the name of Colin O'Brien. I thought those scenes were the strongest and actually had me appreciating the master's masterworks from which Craig was reading to Mr. Harrigan. But I can't say I didn't like the film. I just didn't think it was as scary as it could have been. I also didn't think that the the story was particularly even, But I did think the acting was pretty good, and I also really loved the set design as well as the on-location shooting, even though it was shot in Connecticut, not Maine. But it, but to the filmmaker's credit, and I'm not just crediting director and co-writer John Lee Hancock here, it... They made it look like Maine, and that is really impressive, especially when it wasn't filmed in Maine or, for that matter, in Canada. And I think that Maine is probably the state that's the most like Canada. And I won't get exactly into that uh, description right now, but you could probably find out in some of my previous podcast episodes. But Mr. Harrigan's phone gets my rating of a checkout. I do credit it for being an original story And one that has really good acting as well as scenes that make me appreciate some of the masterworks, particularly from American writers. But it could have been scarier. It could have been more climactic as well as more of a cautionary tale about the prevalence of cell phones in our society. And there were some elements of the storytelling that were confusing, but never really explained as properly or as subtly as they could have been. But I think if you're looking for a late night movie with some mild scares, Mr. Harrigan's Phone is the movie for you. For me, it was just kind of okay. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've reviewed all the movies that I have to review for you for this show, it's now time for me to get into my next segment, which is my final segment, or at least the first part of my final segment, What's Coming Up Next. This is a spoken word preview of movies that are subject to being released in theaters for the week of November 7th through November 11th, 2022. And... The movies that I'm going to detail first are the ones that are subject to being released in theaters for the weekend of November 11th, 2022. The first and unquestionably the biggest movie that's going to be released on November 11th is, drumroll please, and I don't have any sound effects so I can't give you a drumroll, Black Panther Wakanda Forever. This movie is obviously a direct sequel to the Black Panther movie, But it is also the 30th film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And, as you might expect, the character of uh, King Chala, who is the original Black Panther, is not in this movie because, sadly, the actor who played him, Chadwick Boseman, died unexpectedly two years ago at the relatively young age of 43. So... The death of Chadwick Boseman and his character, King Chawla is actually written into this movie, and in this movie, the nation of Wakanda is pitted against intervening world powers as they mourn the loss of their king. Who's going to be the new Black Panther? I don't exactly know, but it could be a man, it could be a woman, particularly King Chala's sister, Shuri who was played in the previous film as well as several other MCU films by Letitia Wright. It could be Okoye, who's played by Danae Guerrera. It could be King Chala's love interest Nakia, played by Lupita Nyong'o. And those are just the female members of the Wakanda kingdom. I don't know. And I've been deliberately avoiding previews of this film for that reason. But there are several actors. As I said, there's Danae Guerrera, Lakeisha, excuse me, Leticia Wright, and Lupita Nyongo who are reprising their roles, in addition to Angela Bassett reprising her role as King Chala's mother, Ramonda. There's also Martin Freeman reprising his role as Everett Ross, one of the few white people in the previous uh, Black Panther movie. And this is a movie for which I am very excited. But I'm also prepared to be disappointed for two reasons. Number one, sequels are rarely better than the original. And number two, the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies that have come out this year have been eh, not so great. None of them have been particularly terrible, but they have been disappointing. Will Black Panther Wakanda Forever be the best MCU film since Spider-Man No Way Home? It could be. Could it be the worst film? It could also be that as well. But I'm going to keep my hopes in check, go in with an open funnel, and I will let you know what I think about this film on next week's show. So it may seem that MCU movies come out in theaters or superhero movies in general come out in theaters and other films that might be coming out around the same time are just run and hide, figuratively speaking. But there actually are three other films that are subject to being released in theaters on November 11th, 2022, besides Black Panther Wakanda Forever. One of them is a movie that is a Christmas-themed film that is called Spirited. It stars Will Ferrell, who has proven himself to be very funny, and Ryan Reynolds, who has not proven himself to be very funny, except maybe when he's playing the character of Deadpool. But Spirited is indeed a film that is Christmas-themed, it, coming out in November, uh, right in time for Christmas, and I unfortunately do not have a description of the movie for you right now. It's actually missing from my queue. Oh, actually, it just popped up. This is Spirited Is, a musical version of Charles Dickens' story of a miserly myth- misanthrope who is taken on a magical journey. What misanthrope could they possibly be talking about in terms of Charles Dickens' story about Christmas? You could probably figure that out for yourself. But Will Ferrell does not, I don't think, play Ebenezer Scrooge. He is credited as playing the role of a character called Present, who I might assume to be the ghost of Christmas Present. I don't know. But he does team up with Ryan Reynolds who plays a character by the name of Clint Briggs. So I don't know if this is an alternate telling of A Christmas Carol or if it's supposed to take place in the same year and the same cinematic and literary universe as uh, A Christmas Carol. I don't exactly know. But the cast list is not showing me anybody who's playing Ebenezer Scrooge. Right now, so I can't exactly tell you, but Will Farrell plays present who I presume to be the ghost of Christmas present. There's another actress who plays past. Her name is Sunita Mani and Tracy Morgan is voicing the ghost of Christmas yet to come who, as you m- might know from the original Charles Dickens story, doesn't have a voice. He just points a finger. He's the Marcel Marceau character except without all the delightful m- mimery. But I don't know how this movie's going to be. The fact that it has Ryan Reynolds in it, frankly, does not give me hope for the film. But then again, it has Will Ferrell in it, who's usually very funny. But the last time that Will Ferrell was in a movie that took place in the 1800s in London, and it was based on a very famous creation, uh, literary creation... That movie was Holmes and Watson and was considered by many to be the worst film of 2018. It wasn't by me. I thought it was serviceable. And there were scenes that were very funny, but there were also scenes where both Will Farrell and John C. Riley were trying particularly hard, almost too hard to be funny. But Spirited is a movie that I'm probably going to see. And I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Another movie that is subject to being released in theaters on November 11th is a movie that's called The Friendship Game. This is a movie that is about a group of teenagers in a small town who discover a strange object that tests the strength of their friendship. The movie stars Peyton List, Brendan Meyer, Miranda Edwards, and Jennifer Coppling, amongst others. Those are the principal main characters in this film, and I not familiar with many of them. I know Peyton List actually from a few films. She's an American actress who has been in films like Diary of a Wimpy Kid Dog Days. She's been in 27 Dresses. Oh, she's actually been in another Diary of a Wimpy Kid movie as well called Roderick Rules. I've seen the first Diary of a Wimpy Kid movie. I've seen the third one. I've seen the fourth one. I have not seen Roderick Rules. The first and third movies were pretty funny, and they were clean. And when you have somebody who is as has as sick and twisted a sense of humor as I do, and I still laugh at these movies made for kids, you could tell it's pretty funny. But in, in any event, Peyton List stars in this movie, The Friendship Game. And I'd be interested to see this movie, but I'm not guaranteeing that I'm going to see this film because it's likely going to be in limited release, which means that it's probably not going to be coming out in a theater near me. But if I see it, I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. And the final film that is subject to being released in theaters on November 11th, 2022 is a movie that's called Manifest West. It is a coming of age story told through the eyes of a young girl whose family spirals out of control. After after they decide to live off the grid, what exactly does it mean to live off the grid? Well, that's that's subject to interpretation, but this movie actually looks from the poster to be like a an action film, but it it's actually maybe sort of a mix of a coming of age movie and a live action film. I don't exactly know, but it could be a movie that's full of surprises. I also don't know, but the movie stars Michael Cudlitz, Annette Mahendru. Timothy Heidecker and Milo Gibson. If you know any of these characters, then that makes one of us because I have not heard of any of these actors before. It doesn't mean they're not good actors, but I'm just not familiar with their work. But Manifest West is a film that is subject to being released in theaters on November 11th, but don't count on this movie being out in a theater near you. If it's coming out in the theater near me... It's likely that I might see it, but I'll let you know what I think if I see it on next week's show. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've gone through a spoken word preview of all the movies that are subject to being released in theaters, at least in America, on November 11th, 2022, it's now time for me to get into movies that are subject to being released on streaming for the week of November 7th through November 11th, 2022. And there are many of them. And I'm going to start with Netflix first and get to as many streaming platforms as I possibly can. But I cannot guarantee you that I will get to all the films, particularly since I have a very limited time left on this podcast. But if I had the time, I would make this podcast maybe two hours of me just talking. Who needs guests? But maybe I'll have guests later on. But in any event, one Netflix original film that is coming out of Switzerland on Tuesday, November 8th, is a film that's called The Claws Family 2, which is a Netflix original. The original Claus Family movie, I don't believe, was released on Netflix, and if it was, it was not a Netflix original. And actually, even though I was hosting the show back in 2020, this is a film I completely missed. But just to familiarize yourself with what the premise of the movie is, it's about a child by the name of Jules who after discovering his grandfather is Santa Claus, has to help him deliver his presents all around the world, which I can imagine is not an easy task, especially since Jules' hatred for Christmas might make that more difficult than Santa thought. I would imagine delivering toys to every person who celebrates Christmas all over the world would already be a daunting task, even if you loved Christmas. And even though Santa Claus is a saint and not a mortal human being, I would imagine it would be very, very hard for him to fly all over the world. How he does it, I don't exactly know, but I guess that is the miracle of Christmas in the eyes of a child. But that was the description of The Claus Family, the original movie from 2020, and let me just give you a brief description of The Claus Family 2, which is coming out on Netflix, as I said, on November 8th. Jules Claus, we're reintroduced to him, has embraced Christmas again, a little bit of a spoiler from the original film, and is getting ready for the busiest time of the year together with Grandpa Noel. Everything seems to go according to plan until Jules received a very special letter with an intriguing question. What that question is, I don't exactly know, but I am very intrigued to see the original film as well as the sequel because... I love a good Christmas movie. And whenever anybody hears me say, I love a good Christmas movie, they say, oh, you love the Hallmark films. No, I love a good Christmas movie, not a formulaic Christmas movie that's for the romantic comedy crowd. Now, I do get that the Hallmark films have a very successful multi-million dollar formula, and I do respect that from a capitalist point of view. And I also respect that there are people who love Hallmark Christmas movies the same way that they love fast food. You know, it gives them comfort for a a little bit of time, but my palette of Christmas movies that I love are a bit more sophisticated than that. And yeah, maybe I'm rubbing that into people who love those kinds of movies. As I said, I do respect that mentality, but... The, the Claus Family 2 looks like a movie that would be a lot of fun, but higher quality than a typical Hallmark film. But just to give you an example of the actors who are in this film, none of them I actually know, but Noel Claus, Father Christmas, is played by Jan de Clare, who is a Swiss actor. Mo Baker, who is also a Swiss actor, plays his grandson, Jules. And some of the other actors include Braca von Doesberg, Renee Sodendiek, and Ava Vondergut. So, even though I don't recognize any of these actors, it lo- this looks like a movie that's made with a lot of love, and some of the special effects that I've seen from some of the very brief clips that I have look very intriguing. So this might be a movie I see, and it might be a movie that I will review for you on next week's show, but I'm really going to make time to see this. On Thursday, November 10th, one of the Netflix original films that is going to be premiering is another Christmas movie that is called Falling for Christmas. And you might recoil when you hear one of the actors who is going to be starring in this film. You might also recoil when you hear that it is a film that is like a Hallmark original Christmas movie, which Netflix has also capitalized upon, and they must be successful at it because they keep making these kinds of movies, like The Christmas Prince, for example. So Falling for Christmas is a movie that stars, get ready for this, Lindsay Lohan. Yeah, and already maybe your expectations are going down. And the films that Lindsay Lohan has acted in over the last 15 years have frankly been low par. And they've been of lower quality than some of the other films in which co-stars of hers and Mean Girls like Rachel McAdams, Amanda Seyfried, and Tina Fey have acted since making Mean Girls. And I'm waiting for Lindsay Lohan to make a viable comeback. I don't know what her situation is in terms of her addiction, which is not very funny, and I don't joke about that. But I do make note of her poor choices in her movie roles and maybe even some of her TV roles to date. Will Falling for Christmas be a change of pace for her? I doubt it, especially given the premise of this movie, which I'll read for you right now. In the days leading up to Christmas, a young and newly engaged heiress experiences a skiing accident. After being diagnosed with amnesia, she finds herself in the care of the handsome lodge owner and his daughter. Already, I know exactly how this movie is going to go. There's going to be a romantic chemistry between her and this handsome lodge owner who's played by Cord Overstreet. She's going to regain her memory. There's going to be a falling out between the two of them, and then something else happens. So it's probably not going to be the comeback movie for Lindsay Lohan that I hope she eventually makes, but it's probably going to be a movie that I'm actually going to see. Will I like it? Eh, probably not, but I'll let you know what I think if I see it on next week's show. And on to Friday, November 11th, there are several Movies that are going to be premiering on Netflix. One of the American ones is a movie that's called My Father's Dragon, which I think is based on the book that was an international bestseller that I think has been Americanized here. I loved that book. And as it turns out, it is based on the original series of books that was written by Ruth Stiles Gannett, way back in the 40s, I believe. This is an animated film that, ha- that tells the story of Elmer Elevator, who searches for a captive dragon on Wild Island and finds much more than he ever could have anticipated. I think this is one of those movies that does take the magic of reading away from children, but it's also probably one of those movies that's been in development hell. The good news is it's actually not an American film. Um right, that's not exactly good news but it's it's made by the same animation company that made The Secret of Kells and Wolfwalkers. In other words, this is a film company from Ireland that has so far made some very high quality and memorable animated movies that actually rival Disney and especially Disney Pixar in terms of their animation quality. So for that reason, I'm very excited to see My Father's Dragon. And while I can't guarantee that it's a film that I will see for you next week, on my show, it's a movie I will definitely strive to see. So I'm I'm actually really excited for this movie and I probably will let you know what I think on next week's show. That just about does it for this episode of Words on Film. Words on Film is the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures and I am your host and movie critic Dan Burke, reminding you that the views and opinions expressed on Words on Film about movies or other topics are solely those of your host and movie critic Dan Burke. They do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of any employees or volunteers who are working at WBCA or the station as a whole. Until I watch a whole bunch of brand new movies, this is Dan Burke saying I'll see you at the movies.